Miss Macintosh, my darling, chapter 65, part 6, last part. And as for herself, my poor darling, abandoned like this with her baldness about her, she had had to support herself, of course, since there was no man on whom to lean, no man to carry her umbrella for her. And she had had to save money for her train fare east, and she was determined to leave Chicago behind her, to leave it as one might leave the fingers of the wind behind the North Star, to be seen no more in Chicago. She had not wished to be seen by Mr. Bonebreaker, who might have passed her by without recognizing her, might have recognized his black umbrella before recognizing her. She had not returned to the bowling alley where she had been exposed to special hazard in her job as a pin setter, her nine pins scattering and falling like sandpipers before her sand-colored face as the balls rolled in with a long roll of waves. And besides, she had been very tired after a long winter wasted with her connubial dreams, dreams that she might be real like other people and have her place, a safe harbor, a harbor out of the way of the storms of life. There was none, none for her so cold and bare and shivering and alone. Lost before, she was even more lost if that was possible. She was lost to herself, and surely God knows no greater loss than this. Yet surely there must be some work for her to do, some place where she could hide her head until she left Chicago. She could not be like the ostrich hiding its head in the sand. She had read the want ad columns, picking up old newspapers in the gutter, searching for some position which might be right for her. Wanted. Jockey. Only short men with experience need apply. The man's legs must not be longer than the horse's legs. Wanted. Assistant to bartender, bar bouncer. Ideal position for retired pugilist. Small pay, long hours. Wanted. Lighthouse keeper upon the upper Michigan Peninsula vacation land. All year round job, no vacations. Wanted. Furnace stoker. One to walk through furnace fires. Wanted. Man for ice cutter when Lake Michigan freezes over. Only men should apply, she supposed. Ah, life! It exceeded imagination. So Miss McIntosh said now, and so she might have said then. Still, did not her association with impulsive, wrong-headed Mr. Bonebreaker, the gospel salesman who had sold no goods to her, prove the tightness of her chilly reserve, rejecting his God, who had been the God of her childhood? She had not returned to walk in Mr. Bonebreaker's ways where she might be seen by him, where she might stare at this old fisherman of souls like the one reproachful carp who was never caught. But she had stayed on for a few months in the wilderness of Chicago, working with the blind, for they needed her. She was content with this occupation until it came to her that perhaps she was vain. Very vain, thus, to enjoy in others the absence of the sense which gathered vision as the bee gathers honey. The total absence of that sense, sometimes from birth, a total blindness, unlike snow blindness or the confusion, which comes from seeing double, groping for the coffee cup placed within reach of the steady hand. How often she'd seen a blind man try to grope his way through a closed door as if it were a shadow, and through a shadow as if it were a door. The eyes winked not when a bright light was passed before them, and eyes could not be dazzled either by vision or fallacies of vision which such as distortion, illusion, mirage, phantom, apparition, ghost, or magic, mirror, or even one sliver of a mirror, or even one sliver of a minor or sequin of light like that shining now in the face. Indeed, as if she were neither dark nor fair, as if she might have appeared without her wig, then have enjoyed a feeling of usefulness, for she could see what others could not see, and she was herself the argus-eyed, leering, ogling, glaring without a blush. It had often occurred to her that in the world of the blind, few would blush with shame, and here there were many who had almost forgotten the color of the world, or of its rose and green and gold and silver clouds, the lights upon the clouds, the lights upon the waters. Sometimes she felt so safe and prying eyes that she would take off her wig in the sweating days, when there was not a cloud, and the hot wind blowing like fires over the lake which scarcely moved its foamy edges, scarcely breathed. 
Being so still that a dove might sleep upon the breast of a wave, and none might see her if she was blind. She would polish her bald dome with her handkerchief, because the dews collecting there like waters gathering shallows. She was happy among the blind, or almost happy, feeling her strength. Sometimes she played the piano or sang, and love lifted me. She would sing in a high, thin, cracked voice. I was sinking far from shore when the Savior took a hand, lifted me out of the bounding wave, as she had sung with with old Mr. Bonebreaker, who had let her go her hand, as God had let go his hand long ago, and as she would never tell the blind, never tell those who had no eyes, that she had no hair of the starlight, sunlight, moonlight, that she was lost, indeed much like the blind leaving the blind. She would seem more courageous than she was. Sometimes at the old tinny piano she would play, shuffling off to Buffalo, as the blind shuffled and danced. Sometimes she would play the bagpipes, and sometimes she would dance all alone with her loud feet clattering as the blind clapped their hands, never seeing her baldness, or so she thought as the rose cloud stained her face. She was sight to the blind. She brought the blind together, introduced the blind woman to the blind man, and it was always in a manner of speaking love at first sight. At the first fumbling of hands, of visionary hands, for the blind could see somewhat by the sense of touch, much heightened, and they would hesitantly touch the forehead, the eyelids, the lips, the breasts when they met. And doubtless they were always beautiful in their eyes, and thus illustrated the power of that old saying, Love is blind. For love sees not our flaws, cracks, stains. The blind would rub noses like the Chinese when they met, and sometimes it seemed that they were almost clairvoyant, but still she felt that she was secure and not seen, walking busily among them, or walking slowly, cheerful and correct, and filled with hope as the bright light passed in front of the empty eyes, the eyes not winking, never winking at her. There were eyes so blind that they could not shed a tear. There were others always weeping. She would offer hope where there was none, feeling ashamed that she could see to count the chinaware, the old mutilated cups and saucers she had brought from the mission, that she could see with her eyes when they could not, when they must reach with their fingers. Ah, ashamed, for she was different from the blind. There was a blind musician, bald as a snowy dome, for whom all the physical world was like a dream, for he was born in his blindness. But he had a heightened sense of touch and of hearing and of smell, often declaring that he would smell the music of a rose, hear the voice of a cloud, touch a color which he recognized even when he did not see it. And she would place his hands upon the warped keyboard of the old upright piano, and she would find the key of the music, and he would play, building a physical world of distance and force and cracked bells. Sometimes when he rested, she would draw her hands over the piano strings, remembering the lute music of horse's hair, which she had plucked as a child. For this was a music almost not musical. Still, though he clung to her, though he suspected that there was something missing, she felt safe with him as among these stricken people whose flattened eyes saw nothing and could never detect what was wrong with her, that she was born without her hair as they without their eyes, that she was a type of beauty which was vanquished before time began. And to their sense of the physical was different from ours, a tree was like a dream, some knew no color. So all went well, when the blind musician touched her with his fingertips, which seemed to stream with vision, touched her mouth, the contour of her face receding the slope of her barren head when she had sat beside him to put his finger on the key to music. He had touched the silent key. She had sat still, but he was not astonished, for he thought of the waters as a force of the clouds as a distance, and of the tree as a dream, even with its shaking leaves. Yet she fled from Chicago, hardly stopping to pack her, su- her suitcase which was very light of weight. Fleeing from Chicago, she drifted aimlessly in wide circles toward the east, more aware of her loneliness than she had ever been, more aware of her differences, though they were concealed, and filled with a sharp, gnawing pain, because Mr. Bonebreaker had fled when he saw her. For a while, drifting rudderless in the state of Ohio, 
She thought of going to look for her dear brother Richard among the Polynesian headhunters, where he was still preaching the old religion similar to what Mr. Bonebreaker had preached in Chicago. This was before Richard's disappearance, which had so long baffled the elders of the church. This was when she was still hearing from Richard, for neither had he lost his head as yet, nor had he joined the headhunters. But how find him among the desolate islands on the other side of the world, where, not caring if his mail should ever be forwarded, and perhaps there were no post offices upon those islands sinking the monsoons, he went from post to post, or went where there was no mission. It did not seem feasible to try to find Richard. She looked out of the train window one day and saw that the next stop would be Buffalo. And why should she not see Niagara Falls? It did the newly wedded who shuffled off to Buffalo to celebrate their honeymoons by seeing the falls. Well, that was one way to see the water falling, just one way, Miss McIntosh had thought, to put out the fire. An old witch here, surely no one had time for honeymoons. Couples being quickly wedded, quickly bedded, but not bedded before they were wedded, just as surely as there were none who were wedded, not, but not bedded in old witch here, or bedded only once. Couples bedded in the dark, undressing in the dark, and rising in the dark, and dressing themselves before ever the roost, first rooster crowed at the first dawn. And doubtless for some the dawn would never come. But Miss McIntosh quite inadvertently had reached this paradise of honeymooners on long honeymoon or short honeymoons and found herself by chance registering, black umbrella over her arm, at an old hotel which did a land office business in honeymooners coming from all directions, which was furnished with the most remarkable decor of blind cupids with golden arrows sporting on the ceilings. She should have lifted her umbrella and big signs everywhere saying, as it might be said elsewhere, that there was no credit allowed, honeymooners only allowed. And the hotel clerk staring at her and asking, Is a gentleman expected? Miss McIntosh had blushed and said nothing. She certainly had a right in this free country to register as a single person if she, she so desired. Oh, what could she could show this brash hotel clerk if he kept on staring like that at her. She could take off her wig. But he was either too young or too old to understand, and she would wish to bring no one sudden shock by her deliberate intention to show no one her baldness anywhere, and most especially where there were so many honeymooning couples just starting out upon life's journey. No, honeymooning couples just starting out upon life's way. Yet she had been rather surprised where there were so many Aphrodites and Apollos and so many horses tangling with each other to find upon the walls so many portraits of dead loves, and of so many couples who had been separated from each other in one way or another, so many who had never tangled or had missed their loves or were jerked away from their loves by a cruel fate. Romeo and Juliet, Paul and Virginia, Eloise and Abelard, Tristan and the White Isolde, reminding her of the increase of American divorces, that probably some were planning their divorces before the wedding bells could ever ring. And indeed, as she had found out afterward, just as there may be touts and shills working at trotting tracks, there were a great many divorce court lawyers representatives working here, handing out cards promising quick and easy divorces, no long period of residence required, salubrious air. Miss McIntosh had been rather surprised by this dark note where all should have been optimism. The hotel clerk, clerk looked, the hotel clerk told the bellhop to carry Miss McIntosh's suitcase to her room, where she was much surprised to find a Moody's Bible chained to a post. Somehow it had made her think of Mr. Bonebreaker. He had surely been intoxicated with his religion, with all his visions of the end of the world, the heavens opening and the skies rolling back, and he had gotten married as if to justify his fears. And here was poor Miss McIntosh, alone in a honeymooner's hotel, without so much as a bridegroom or escort, and with only her black umbrella, which she had kept hooked on the side of her bed, that she might run out in case of flood or fire, and yet be sheltered, just as Mr. Bonebreaker had been sheltered. Indeed, she had felt if she ought to sleep with her black umbrella over her, for she had taken off her wig in privacy, 
and there was a mirror on the ceiling and there were mirrors on the walls and even though she had turned off the electric light the moonlight fell around her and lighted her bald head which she could see every way she turned and all night long she could hear the most uproarious sounds of couples tangling she had no doubt couples dancing under a blue moon there had been so much noise that she felt as if she might have come to a whorehouse instead of a honeymooners hostelry where the hotel clerk had told her they did the non-seasonal business for surely at least from her point of view if there had been true love then all the couples would have been sleeping asleep of the blessed ah if there had only been mr bonebreaker here all might have been so different for her miss mackintosh said or so she had thought then though now when she was old she knew that there might not have been a difference she had stopped for a year in buffalo spending her savings in this astonishing extravagance she bought everything in sight she bought everything changing her purse entirely from head to foot her own mother would not have known her her old father with eyes averted would have passed her on the streets she did the things she should not have done all of them she adorned herself with veils and velvet rosebuds and high-heeled white slippers which almost threw her a white dress which she bought at a winter sale a white panama hat large brimmed and drooping under its weight of velvet rosebuds wearing these clothes so early in spring she was sometimes caught in the snow not by degrees but suddenly she changed her person she changed from the dark to the fair at niagara falls along among the blissful honeymooners she was the changed person wearing an ashen wig for it was her decision to put the past entirely behind her to go on and conquer for a little while the dark angel of death it seemed easy to do this as a matter of fact her health which had almost vanished almost returned but at niagara falls among the honeymooners ah her mistake to have reached this place she was not alone as she seemed for she walked a while like a bride accompanied by the invisible bridegroom mr bonebreaker whose hair was decently combed, whose suit was decently mended, whose pointed shoes were decently polished. He might have been a prince, but he was invisible, patting her black-gloved hands. Under his black umbrella she saw Niagara Falls while the honeymooners, honeymooners whirled around her, something like the autumn leaves, and Mr. Bonebreaker's voice boomed in her ear. As she was not a person, however, to indulge in the luxury of grief or ashen memory or any expectation of the impossible, she was determined once more to forget Mr. Bonebreaker, treacherous, perfidious one who had, in a manner of speaking, deserted her at the altar and was now, ah, how he would have loved it, an invisible being at her side, preaching the world's end to honeymooners, how the sun should go out, how the stars should fall, and the serpent bite without enchantment. She stood alone, as if he had not existed. She forgot Mr. Bonebreaker, body and soul. He was out of her mind, out of her heart. Among the honeymooners on a little boat, wearing an oilskin, she stood alone, against a backdrop, up against a background of water and mist. No one noticed her.